Koutou Katoa. Good morning, everybody. Great to see those of you here today with us in the room, and welcome also to those listening or watching online. Hasn't this generosity series been so great? I've been so inspired as I've re-listened to talks, um, as I've prepared for today over the past few weeks. And I really do recommend, if you've missed any, go back to Spotify and catch up on them because this is one of those series which is absolutely best in its totality. We had Newt open talking about the cycle of generosity. That's one you want to watch because it had some great diagrams that I won't even begin to try and describe. Uh, Jim then spoke to us about generosity of time, our time not being our own, Kairos time. And then Mary spoke last week about being generous with our gifts um, to, for the benefit of everybody around us. So all of these were amazing talks, and I do, again, really recommend catching up if you've missed any. So this brings us to this week, and the topic of being generous with our resources, or as I've named it, an open-handed life. This week is actually the middle of our generosity talks, so I'd like to say that this is the linchpin of the series. I'm claiming it, I'm working with it, but we'll come back to that a bit later. First of all, let's go back to the reading. So we have a story about a woman, and in John's account, he names her as Mary, who comes to Jesus as he's reclining at a feast and breaks open the seal of this really large jar of expensive perfume, nard, it's worth a year's wages, and anoints Jesus with it. And there's so much of it that it flows from his head down to his feet. I mean, I'm trying to even imagine what that would look like or feel like, um, let alone smell like. Can you even imagine what that would, that amount of expensive perfume would, would fragrance the room like? I just think about it because we had a Gia's birthday party a few weeks ago. We did some candle making. And I can tell you that a couple of misplaced drops of fragrance uh, perfumed our house for days. So I'm imagining this would have been pretty overwhelming, but much better than the synthetic French pear that we had to endure. And then the disciples react. They take this act of generosity, and wow, do they judge it. They're horrified. What a waste of money. This perfume could have been sold in the money given to the poor. But Jesus defends Mary and asks them why they're bothering her for doing this beautiful thing. The poor, he says, you will always have with you, but not me. He's not dismissing the poor, but he's acknowledging that Jewish law was set up to provide and care for the poor. This was a really special moment. Kairos time, don't you think? And then he goes on to tell them something even more bizarre, that her actions have prepared him for burial. What? And not only that, but he finishes by telling them that wherever the gospel is preached in the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. I think this would have blown their minds. Maybe that's why Judas immediately went to uh, talk to the high priests about betraying Jesus, couldn't cope. So we have the story of the incredible generosity of Mary to Jesus. 
And I do wonder what she was thinking. What was she thinking? To start with, the size of this jar, they think, was about 15 times the size of a usual flask of perfume. It was massive. Did she just have that hanging around? Was it? Did she bring that with her just in case? And it's expensive. Items like this were often family heirlooms. They were really precious. Mary's sister and brother, Martha and Lazarus, were there too. What would they have thought? seeing this precious family possession smashed. This is an act of wild generosity. Was she drunk? What led to this? And I think at this point we actually need to backtrack because this almost feels kind of like the end of a story. Earlier in John, we read the story of Mary seeing Jesus weep and then raise her brother from the dead with compassion in response to the tears of Martha and herself as they asked him why he'd not come sooner and why he'd let Lazarus die. Because we read that Jesus loved Lazarus, Mary and Martha. They were dear friends of his. These were not casual acquaintances. They were friends. And then in Luke, There's the account of Mary as she sits at the feet of Jesus in her home, sitting as he taught. Now, she was sitting in a spot that's reserved for disciples, for the apprentices who traveled with the rabbi, who lived with them, who learned from them. That was not a place for women. But Jesus had welcomed her there. He'd called her friend. He'd called her disciple. So Mary knew Jesus' goodness. She knew his faithfulness. She'd seen his power and experienced his love, his grace, and his generosity to her. So she wasn't just a random woman who cracked a vase over Jesus. He was her friend. And she lavished Jesus in an act that can only be described as worship. She literally poured her love onto him. And it was a truly heartfelt, extravagant response of love, of gratitude, and worship to Jesus because she knew him and because she knew that he knew her. The heart of it is that Jesus' generosity to Mary produced a generous heart and a generous response back to him. I walked into my sister-in-law's house last week and she had a calendar at the entrance that had this on it. When grace happens, generosity happens. Unsquashable, eye-popping, big-heartedness happens. I think some eyes would have been popping. But doesn't that sound like the most incredible joyful way to live. Jesus' grace had set Mary free from all of the gender stereotyping of the day, and he had embraced her as friend. Where generosity, where grace flows, generosity is free to flow. Where have you been freed? Where have you known God's grace in your life.
Mary was willing to give God everything, even her most precious possession. If that was her dowry for marriage, which is another theory, that meant she would also have then been entrusting God with her entire future because without marriage in those times, you were nothing as a woman. Everything. That's pretty big. Who feels nervous hearing that? What does that mean for us? That brings me back to being the linchpin. Because in this series so far, we've talked about our time and our gifts not being our own. Today, we're talking about our resources. And we have further talks to come on being generous in our conversation and with our finances. And I want to suggest to you today that our whole life is our unique resource. It's your unique resource. The shape of your life, your work, your study, your home life, everything you've experienced and gone through, the good and the bad, your skills and abilities, your time, your financial situation, all of these things make up the unique package of you. You have things to give and to offer that only you can bring in a way that only you can bring. God wants our whole life as it is, shared with and submitted to him, remembering that he is a good and loving and generous God he doesn't take and leave us without. Going back to John 3.16, we see this is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son, and this is why. So that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. And then if we go to 1 John, also 3.16, it's a nice matching reference to remember in the future. I think it was done on purpose, personally, or maybe it was just for me. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money or worldly possessions to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion. How can God's love be in that person? So we're explicitly told here to model our love for one another on Jesus' actions on the cross. Let's not merely say we love each other. Let's show the truth by our actions. A truly generous heart beats to the knowledge and understanding of the overwhelming love that God's grace extends to us. Before we were friends of God, he died for us. What we have is not just for us. The cycle of generosity, it's all about the continual flow in and out that is sustaining for everyone. But we do live in a world and in a time that really applauds the idea of the self-made woman, the self-made man, 
which is kind of crazy because none of us ever got anywhere on our own anyway. But we can feel like our worth is only measured by our individual value and our individual accomplishments. What can I put my name to? How we stand on our own two feet. And I also know that for some of us, um, the idea of living truly reliant in community is actually a really uncomfortable idea because people will naturally let you down. So it's just easier to rely on yourself. But that's not God's heart, and he challenges that. He exists in community, and that is how he calls us to participate in community with him and into generous community with each other. You cannot be a Christian on your own. It's an oxymoron. It's impossible. It's against the whole heart behind it. We also face the challenge presented by the relative wealth industry, technology on our Western world and lifestyle, which just all enable lives to be led in more and more isolation. And in our advancement, our practical need for one another on the daily has really dropped away. Brené Brown tells the story of a group of women in a poor, remote village in Africa who every afternoon would meet to wash their family's laundry by hand in the river. And when they met, they'd talk, they'd share stories, they'd talk about their day, they'd laugh till they cried or they just cried. They shared everything. They were poor in resources but really rich in relationship. Sometime later, the village um, experienced a change in its resourcefulness after they learnt to plant and harvest crops that they could sell to neighbouring villagers, which was great because they had more income, so they could afford uniforms and send their kids to school. Homes were upgraded, they were able to get utilities connected, wells were dug, they finally had clean water, and they could even buy modern conveniences such as toasters and washing machines. But once nearly every home in the district had a washing machine, what they discovered was that the mothers in the region dramatically increased with depression. Which is odd, right? Because they'd risen from poverty to a more comfortable life. Um, and Jenny Allen, telling this story in her book, Finding Your People, ends with a comment from a Rwandan pastor who was raised in a refugee family following the Rwandan genocide, who visited the USA, and the first time he went, he observed, the more resources a person gets, the more walls he or she puts up, and the more lonely they become. Absolutely not knocking the importance of economic development, particularly for those in poverty. But this does need to be done carefully in a way that break, does, doesn't break down the sense of community. Our resources are needed to be used to serve our community, not our ability to isolate. So who is our community? Well, the church is called the body of Christ. Just another plug for the you can't be a Christian on your own thing. We're called to encourage and uplift each other. And the New Testament is full of stories of early Christians meeting together, sharing their food, sharing what they had, being known by each other. And at St. Augustine's, we really value our formational communities, which is our name for home groups. Being able to live in an intentional way, growing together to become more like Jesus, and being able to provide practical support too. For example, when new babies are born or there's sickness, 
these communities are the first port of call to provide meals for one another, to help out, to alleviate what they can in stressful situations. And we keep these as geographical as possible so they can be as practical in sharing of resources and being as supportive as possible. Um, and if you want to know more about formational communities, come and chat to Raywin. I think it's amazing that in our church whānau, we know we have that support. I remember after we had Gia, our first baby, and, um, you know, talking about the meals that we had with our antenatal group, and these people were floored by the support. None of them had support like we did. But what about beyond the walls of our church? The early church stood out because of the way they lived, because of their love for neighbours, for the poor, for the marginalised, those outside of acceptable society. Um, and we actually have the same challenge and opportunity. Matthew 5 says, If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you're only kind to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. Te Pai, the gospel, found a pathway to Aotearoa through firstly the generosity and hospitality of Samuel Marsden. In 1809, to the Ngāpuhi chief Ruatara, a, poor, a border ship returning to New South Wales from London. Ruatara had sailed from New Zealand a few years earlier, attempting to meet the king in England, but he wasn't successful and he was mistreated aboard a number of whaling ships. And he was in a really bad condition when Marsden met him. But he took him, he clothed him, he cared for him and nursed him back to health. And then Rotata lived with Marsden, learning skills to take back to his people to benefit them. And then after returning to Rangihoa in the Bay of Islands, he in turn invited Marsden and some missionaries to set up a base in Rangihoa and gave them his hospitality and protection. They couldn't come without that invitation and they couldn't go anywhere else because they needed somebody to offer their hospitality and protection and that was Ruatara. And it was here through a reciprocated generosity of resources that the very first message of Jesus Christ was preached to the indigenous people of Aotearoa and Te Rongopai was seated. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us without deserving it. And that's the opportunity that we have to show God's generous love to a world that really desperately needs it. Because we know what we have and because of a gracious, loving and generous God. So what do we have to share? What's in your hands today? I suspect usually what we have to share is often greater than we first believe. We have our homes, whatever they look like, big, small, tent, caravan, cave. The worst flat I ever lived in was in Newtown in Wellington. It was a big, cold and drafty ex-nurses hostel um, near the hospital and it had mice. And we regularly ran out of hot water for showers. And our laundry was like an outhouse. But over the hill on High Tai Tai, I had friends who were a young married couple. Um, and they lived in a lovely, small, cosy rental. And they had a bath. 
my friend Roz had offered if I ever wanted to use their bath, um, I could. It's because I loved them, but I didn't have one. Um, and it took till having some kind of breakdown to take her up on it. So I went over the hill and arrived to find a bath was run, there were candles lit, her husband Johnny was making me a coffee, and there was a plate of baking to enjoy while I soaked my sadness away. Their generosity with their bathroom was balm to my heart, to my soul, and to my body. You probably don't usually think of your bath as a resource, do you? But hospitality can be quite creative. It can be planned or spontaneous. I also remember the first time I went to um, coffee group after we had Cohen. He was a couple of weeks old. Gia was about 21 months and we were heading to Boric Cafe in Kumu for the very first time. And we arrived about two hours before everybody else because I'd made Matt get us all ready in the car before he left to work. I was not going to attempt that again on my own. So we arrived. Arrived there. It's really cute. Farmhouse, farmer's market. You need to go if you haven't. Um, it's got a great play area, there's chickens roaming, but unfortunately within five minutes of being there, a rooster had come up behind Gia, who was 21 months old, and crowed, and given her the fright of her life. So she's in hysterics, Cohen's in hysterics because he's hungry, but I can't get to him because she won't let me put her down. I finally get into a chair and I'm feeding her, feeding him with her perched on my knees at the end, and I'm an exhausted basket case. Clearly I look it because another mum, total stranger, passes me, sees me and says, are you okay? Can I buy you a coffee? And in eight years, I've never been able to tell that without welling up. And her kindness broke me and I accepted the coffee. You know, and if that had been one of my friends turning up early and offering me a coffee, it would have still really warmed my heart. But for a stranger to see me, to see my need and to extend kindness and generosity was meaningful in such an entirely different way. That was an off-the-cuff coffee offer that was so appreciated and meant more than that woman will ever know. Always share coffee with new mums. But we should also look deliberately for opportunities to be generous, particularly to those who are in need. And many of you did that last year. You jumped in to participate when we did Share the Love at Christmas um, and a number of Christmases before that when we've partnered with the Asylum Seekers Support Trust and the Red Cross to provide Christmas presents for the children and families who've been forced to leave their home countries and come to New Zealand to search for a safe place to live. And it was amazing. All 100 gifts that we had to buy were allocated in two Sundays. Generous hearts reflecting God's generosity to Auckland and to those who don't know him yet. And there'll be more to come this year. Meals are a great opportunity also to be generous in both sharing what we have and inviting people into our world, hosting people, dropping meals off to people who don't need to worry about the admin of cooking is an amazing blessing. But sometimes we need to stop and look and ask ourselves, who's at our table? Is it always our mates? Or is it new people at church or at work or in the school community? 
it's really easy to get in a pattern of who we include. Sometimes we have to deliberately look at that and challenge ourselves to step outside. These are just a few ways that I've experienced the generosity of others. And you'll have other ideas because you can bring empathy and understanding of what's required in specific situations because you've lived it better than somebody else who hasn't. And that's really exciting. My generosity doesn't need to look like your generosity and your generosity doesn't need to look like mine. Mary's generosity certainly didn't look like the disciples. I love that resource is both a noun, it's something we have to give, and it's a verb, an action, something we can do for others. The te reo Māori word manaki tanga is an amazing word. It's a great thing about language, right? Sometimes there's words in other languages that just bring heart to something that English doesn't do. And we often use it in conjunction with hospitality, but it's way more powerful than that. Manakitanga means to strengthen, to uplift the mana, the dignity, the authority of a person. I love that. It reframes it. That's such a powerful act and that puts so much heart behind what we can do for others. What can we be doing to extend manakitanga in our communities? To live life in a way that we uplift the mana of those we come in contact with. Remembering it doesn't have to be perfect. Not everything needs to be Instagrammable. And we will never know the significance a generous act can have on the receiver. Mary's response was genuine worship. It was a heartfelt offering of all she had in response to knowing that Jesus had given her everything. She herself didn't even understand the significance of her actions. And in the face of criticism from the other disciples, Mary, uh, Jesus honours her, saying this act will be remembered whenever the gospel is shared. Without knowing it, she was anointing him for burial following his soon coming death. I want to be so open-handed with my life that God can use anything and everything. And I really want my heart to want that more than it always does. But without understanding and knowing the reality of God's love and grace, generosity can just become one more tick box. One more thing we have to do to be a good Christian. And that is not what we want. How's your heart feeling today? How are you reacting to all of these talks on generosity? Does it excite you? Or do you feel your body tensing from your fists to your feet? Is there something that's so precious to you, you're actually holding it tightly, maybe not so willing to share? Do you need to spend some more time at the feet of Jesus, sitting with him, really feeling and understanding the extravagant way he loves you and will always provide for you, to feel your heart unclench, the antidote 
to a hoarding heart. And as I come to close, I want to acknowledge there are seasons when it's easier to be more generous than others. But we're called to be generous both in and out of season. God has always put things in your hands that you can use to bless and encourage others, whatever season you're in right now. And that's the exciting thing about life, right? It constantly changes. So in this conversation with God, it's going to be ongoing forever. What do I have in my hands today, God? What have I got that I can give today, God? It's not going to look the same as today, tomorrow, next year. But that's amazing. I, I just love, I'm somebody who loves change and I, I don't like to get stagnated and we shouldn't either because God might surprise you with what he shows you of what you have to give. So what's in your hands today? We're going to stand and pray um, and then Newt's going to lead us in communion. So if I can invite you just to stand with me. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to take communion and remember your ultimate act of generosity that brought all of us life, that brought all of us freedom, and that brought all of us into relationship with you. I pray that you would show each of us afresh this reality. God, that you would break through our hearts, our minds, for, for these things that we've often heard talked about time and time again. God, show us something new. Show us your love, your extravagance towards us. Father, if there's things that we're holding on to, if we can feel those areas where we're clenching and saying, I'm not ready, <clears throat> I'm not sharing, God, I pray that you would show us what's behind that. And I pray that you would speak to each of us today. Show us what we have to give. Show us the beauty that you've put within us, what you've given us to be outpoured to those around us, where we can bring you, your love, your life to others in our community. Amen.